So we're looking in Ezra again, Ezra 10. So we've had a whole series of sermons uh, before that. And I think Ezra, um, because it's history, it teaches us theology in a really practical way, a way that we can engage with. So I hope for you, you've benefited, even if it's 1% of what I've benefited from um, as we've been going through Ezra. I know it'll have done you good. Because Ezra and Nehemiah, but we haven't got there yet, um, Ezra is all about God's purpose, God's eternal purpose to do his people good, to bring a saviour out of Israel who's going to bless the whole world. And it's almost as though whatever God's people do wrong, God's purpose is still going to be achieved. He's still going to progress things. We saw he kept his promises. That's really, really important, isn't it? God keeps his promises. We saw God's wisdom. So there's loads of things in Ezra that God allows to happen. And you think, if I was doing it that way, I wouldn't have done it. So lots of questions you can ask. Um, so when Zerubbabel comes back, Daniel doesn't. So why is that? Um, why does it take three groups of people returning over a long period of time for eventually things to be right as they are at the end of Nehemiah? Why? Why? Why does God allow the opposition that happens in, the, uh, in chapter 4 and ch chapter 5 of Ezra. And we're going to look at more opposition as we go into Nehemiah. Why does God allow that? Why does it need heathen kings to support God's people to get God's work done? And what we see is God's, God's immense power driving his purpose forward and yet there's some sensitivity, some balance. He does things that we would never think about and really it's heading towards the cross, isn't it? God doing things that we would never have progressed and we would never have anticipated. And that's really important for us to grasp now because the church, and I use the church in inverted commas, in this country, isn't doing so well. Uh, there are things happening in the Church of Scotland and the Church of England that really we are unhappy with because they're ruining the witness of the gospel. And we might easily be discouraged but then when you go back to Ezra, you go back to Nehemiah, you see God's great purpose driving itself forward, driven by him, 
He knows what he's doing. And we just have to be like Ezra, or like, like uh, Nehemiah, and pray. And it also means, I suppose, um, as we look at our own lives, and we see our own weakness, our own struggle with the old man, that we can see God's purpose in that as well. Sometimes we don't see it very clearly. Sometimes things happen, and we never really understand them. But we have this assurance that God's working and he has a purpose. So Ezra, I have found a really encouraging book. And then we come to Ezra 10. And Ezra 10, I think, for me at least, Ezra 10 is about challenge. And what we're going to do tonight, we're going to spend a little bit of time just looking at the big picture and understanding why intermarriage in Ezra 10 was an issue. And that's probably going to take slightly more time than we'd, we'd normally uh, allocate to it, but we'll do that. And then we'll look at what Ezra 10 means to us um, today. So we're going to put Ezra in overall context. Um, the, the issue, the issue is really clear. Um, we're given it at the start of chapter 9. We're given it again at the start of chapter 10. We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the people around us. It doesn't mean to say that a Scotsman can't marry someone from England or I'd, I'd, I'd be the first in trouble. There's much more to this. So we're going to look at the big, the big picture for the Old Testament, the big picture for the New Testament. And I know you know this, but we need to establish the context so that we can uh, look at Ezra 10 properly. So what's the Old Testament about? The Old Testament's really doing two uh, simple things. It's telling us why we need a saviour. It's telling us that God has created us. And then it's hammering home what sin is, whether that's um, looking at what happens in the Garden of Eden, or whether it's the Ten Commandments or, or, or other moral issues that are built uh, around the Ten Commandments elsewhere. So, why we need a saviour. And the second thing it's doing, which is as important, is it's preparing for his arrival. It's telling us that he's going to come. And everything about the Old Testament is really geared towards this. Um, the focus of the temple in Jerusalem is that there's one place and one way to worship God. That's because there's one way to be saved. I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life. And the singularity of what happened in the temple 
It's all about one Savior coming. And for those of you who've been um, with us at the men's breakfast, we've been going through Hebrews. And a lot of that has been talking about the types in the Old Testament, the high priest, uh, Moses, all pointing towards Jesus and all being fulfilled in Jesus. So they're the examples, the models. And then Jesus is the real thing. He's the effective saviour of the world. So God's plan is that a saviour is going to be born in Israel with a nation that's ready for him. And we're told, aren't we, that this happens at just the right time. So, that means that anything that detracts from that is a problem. So, in if you go back to Ezra 9 and look at verses 11 and 12, it summarizes the issue about intermarriage from Deuteronomy 7. It says, the land you are entering to possess is a, so this is the, the promised land. The land you're entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples, by their detestable practices. They have filled with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. So, the Old Testament is really quite clear. The issue of intermarriage is a, is a spiritual one. It's detracting from God's eternal purpose. And we're given some quite, um, as, as we go through the Old Testament, we're given some examples of where this goes wrong. And the, the first, the main, and, and really the most catastrophic example of this is, um, is, is Solomon. So I've got um, a section from 2 Kings 11 and this and, and the following slide, which is the, the rest of the verses, tells, it shows how clearly the wisest man who ever lived, how he could still be extremely foolish. So King Solomon however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. So it's a spiritual issue. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. 
as Solomon grew old. And that's a warning, isn't it? Solomon started well. And then as he grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father has been. He followed Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father has done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Shemoch, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same thing, he, so he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Even although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So really quite a, a severe and a clear example of the problem of intermarriage in an Old Testament context. So, New Testament. So Jesus has come. All the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in, in him. He is the prophet par excellence. He is the high priest. And he is the king, the king of his people. He's been the Passover lamb. And he's come in uh, Bethlehem as promised. And everything has been fulfilled in him. So the Jews as a nation are shortly going to be destroyed by the Romans. So in the Old, sorry, in the New Testament, the, the function of the church, the function of God's people is different. We're no longer bringing um, a, a situation where the Messiah is going to be born we're no longer heading towards Jerusalem. Everything starts in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's complete. The, sac um, the, the cross has fulfilled all the Old Testament. And now we're moving out. So Jesus is talking about um, proclaiming the truth um, in Judea to start off with. But then moving towards the end of the world. Eh, towards ends of the earth but the issues about spiritual well-being are still the same to be a witness to be able to talk the talk you have to walk the walk and then if we look specifically at um if we look specifically at the issues of marriage, and I'm losing, 
I'm doing a David Livingston and forgetting what I'm going to say. Um, but that doesn't mean to say I'm going to leave, unfortunately. It just means I'm going to um, procrastinate in the, in the pool for a minute to find out where I am and then restart again. So, um, if we look at 2 Corinthians, it talks quite clearly in a similar way to the Old Testament about not marrying unbelievers. So this is 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common or or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? So it's saying we shouldn't marry as Christians, we shouldn't marry unbelievers. That's because a Christian has one set of values and life goals and priorities, and the unbeliever has a completely different set. So the picture that we're given is two oxen pulling a plough in one direction. I've never, I've never pulled a plough. I'm not a farmer, but I can imagine that for oxen you need to be very focused on doing what you're doing. If there are two animals and one of them's going in that direction and one of them's going in the other direction, it's not going to be very productive. It's going to be quite stressful. It's going to be a lot of friction. And um, I think that's true when we do find a situation, however that comes about, for Christians and non-Christians who are in a marriage relationship. But it does happen. And we know that um, from our own experience. And we also know that from Scripture. Because Paul talks about how husband and wife who aren't one's a Christian, one's not a Christian, are to relate to one another. So we've got that in 1 Corinthians 7. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not believing and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let them go. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So we're not to marry unbelievers, but if someone is married to an unbeliever, then we're not to divorce them unless they leave. If they want to leave, we have to let them go. So hopefully, um, although it's taken a wee while, hopefully that puts Ezra 10 into some sort of context. So, Let's put, let's look at uh, Ezra 10. We've got three S's. The first one's sin. So the first sin, uh, sorry, the first thing we notice is that 
there has been intermarriage. It's um, between, uh, it's been by priests and Levites, leaders and officials. We're told that in chapter 9. So it's not just one or two people. It's core to what's happening in Israel at this point. But there's a simple recognition that this is what's happening. It's, there's nobody arguing about why they were doing it. There's a, a simple, honest confession that it's wrong. And that's actually really helpful, isn't it? We know that God sees everything. God sees all sin. So we have to be really honest with ourselves and recognize sin in our own lives when we see it. We can't deceive God. We can only deceive ourselves. So that's the first S. The second S is support. One of the themes in Ezra that's quite helpful for us is that it's not really about individuals. It's not about any one individual. And you and I, we live in a society where the individual is king. Everything's um, driven by the individual. But here... It's, it's very much about groups of people. Um, when we looked at Ezra 9, um, and we found it in uh, the very first verse of um, Ezra 10, um, Ezra's praying, confessing, weeping, throwing himself down. He is really, really disturbed by the sin that he's found. Um, when we looked at Ezra 9, we found that he'd been he'd torn his clothes and he'd plucked his own beard. He was really, really upset. And that, I'm sure, made him emotionally exhausted. I'm sure he felt um, discouraged. I suspect he felt really quite angry with um, people like the, Levi the Levites and the priests. What on earth are they doing? But what we're told here is that Ezra was not alone. There was others around, in fact, the bulk of people around who recognized what he was upset about and came and gave him support. And if you look at verse 2, you have this uh, gentleman, Sekaniah. I'll leave the pronunciations to Ian. But um, this gent, he, he understood and he outlines the problem. He says, we have been unfaithful to God by marrying foreign women from the people around us. Clear, concise about the problem. And he knew it was a problem. 
But then just listen to the next sentence. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. So Ezra, we found out that he was a student. He really got to grips with God's word. But he wasn't the only one. This gent, Sekaniah, had an immense understanding of what God was like. He knew God was patient and gracious and kind and long-suffering. And therefore he could stay, say, there is still hope for Israel. And it's helpful, I think, for us as we struggle. What encourages each other most? It's to explain and about who God is. That's what helps each of us in our own circumstances the most turning and looking to God. So second eye is saying the God forgives sinners. That's the record of the Old Testament as well as the New. The repentant have a home with God. And in fact, it's only the repentant who have a home with God. And it continues. So there's um, some comment about what should be done. And then verse 4, we will support you. So take courage and do it. And what he's saying is, there's a problem here. And Ezra, you're the leader. We want to help you confront the problem. And that tells us loads of different things, doesn't it? It tells us that if there is a problem, then we have to deal with it. The cause of the gospel, the honour of the Lord Jesus means that if there's a big problem, it has to be confronted. But it's not easy for leaders to do that because leaders are human beings and leaders know that they're sinners as well. Therefore, it's helpful when the church supports leaders to to challenge and to deal with problems. You think about Paul. Paul described himself as the chief of sinners, so he knew his sin. And yet Paul was also the one that challenged the church in so many different ways. So we need to give support to the elders when they need to deal with big issues. They need our support. Then if we move on to verse 12, we find the whole assembly agreeing to Ezra's solution. Verse 12, 
except for four named um, individuals. And it's quite interesting if you read in verse 15, it mentions a Meshulam there. He doesn't seem to have, he seems to be the sort of secondary person who's objecting to what Ezra's saying. But then, if you look down to verse 29, we find that Meshulam is listed as one of those who had married a foreign wife. So you can, antis- you can almost see the scene of him getting his friends around, advocating his case and objecting um, to Ezra. And the evil one, doesn't he, always wants to cause discord. But the majority here give support. And we find um, that uh, the elders and the officials in verse um, 8 are encouraging. Encouraging is not necessarily the word. Um, If you don't turn up, you'll lose your property. It's slightly more than encouraging. Um, they're making things happen as well. So Ezra is given support here. So we need we need to give um, in New Testament times we need to give elders the support. So the solution and the solution, if you read verse eleven is really quite easy. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives. There are some things in the Bible that's quite easy to read and there are some things which are quite difficult to actually engage with emotionally. So, what these men have been told to do is to divorce their wives and the reason we read the final verse some of them had children by these wives and I have absolutely no doubt that these men loved their wives and loved their children they would have played with the the children. They would have taught their children. The carpenter would have been teaching his son carpentry and so on. But the challenge that they're being given is you may love your wife and that may in general terms be good but actually you need to love God with all your heart all your soul all your mind and your love for your wife is driving you away from God. So this is an immensely difficult um, emotional command, instruction to these men. Some of you um, will have, I know, have lost your spouses um, as, as they've passed away. You'll have times when you can back, you can look back and see 
some emotionally distressing times and that is what we have here these men being asked or being commanded to go through a formal process and divorce the wives now this is an Old Testament solution they are uh, the Old Testament is about that's why we looked at it at the start is about Israel as a land being prepared for the Lord Jesus to come so this is an Old Testament solution it's not a New Testament solution so if you're married to somebody who's not a believer you have not to divorce them that's why we spent some time. So how does all this apply to you? We are New, Christ we're New Testament people. So where's the relevance in all this? What does this solution say to us? I'll say something really quite simple and something quite profound. It says we must deal with anything that detracts from our relationship with God, however severe that means. So we're going to run through some verses now that really reflect a New Testament take on Ezra 10. So if our right eye causes, us, causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So Jesus isn't talking about physical, um, doing physical damage to our body, but he is talking about whatever is distracting from our relationship with God deal with it cut it out in other words our spiritual well-being has to be our absolute priority nothing if you think about your relationship with your husband or your wife nothing's to come between the pair of you well nothing is to come between our relationship with our Father in heaven. If there's something that gets in the way, whatever that something is, we need to deal with it. So you remember when Jesus was asked about what's the greatest commandment? Jesus is saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and our danger isn't is that we think of majority as long as we love god more than anything else we're fulfilling this and that's because that's maybe what we're achieving but actually what jesus is saying and what the bible says a whole is it's 100 percent commitment it's not just 
of the majority. So we have to be fully committed. All word about 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. So it's about our relationship with God. It's about being holy as he's being holy. And I know, I know I struggle with that. It's an immense, it's an unachievable target. And that's not just me, that's all of you, because you're, you're human beings like I am, honest. Or when Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up their cross and follow me. It's not me first. It's not even me at all at any time. It's God all the time. And that's an immense challenge. So Ezra, so much encouragement, so much, you, you can see God doing things. And then this chapter, in some respects, says... And God's going to do things, but he's going to do things in us. And he's going to change us. Now, we could sing now um, something like, All to Jesus I Surrender. But for me, I worry that I sing lies. Because I know the struggle that I have. So I wanted to think a little bit more Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. So that's just what Ezra 10 has been about, isn't it? Deal with what detracts from your relationship. Throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So let's keep going. And how do we do that? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy sent before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So we have to be committed. The examples, not Ezra, the examples, Jesus. We have to run the race that is tiring, difficult at times, and we have to strive to overcome come sin and everything that destroys detracts and entangles us and we do so by fixing our eyes on him and by considering him